Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Greg King. He's an award-winning journalist and activist credited with spearheading the movement to protect Headwaters Forest in Humboldt County, California. King initiated the Redwood Wars following the notorious 1985 takeover of the venerable Pacific Lumber Company by the Houston Energy and Real Estate conglomerate Maxam. Greg King has spent decades researching redwood logging and preservation efforts. His articles and photographs have appeared in The Sun, Sierra, Smithsonian, Rolling Stone, Newsweek, The Portland Oregonian, The Sacramento Bee, Mother Jones, and other publications. In 2016, the Environmental Protection Information Center presented King with its annual Sempervirens Lifetime Achievement Award. King lives in Humboldt County. Today, we talk about his book, The Ghost Forest, Racist, Radicals, and Real Estate in the California Redwoods. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. And second, thanks for being on the program. Oh, well, you're very welcome. But thank you, Derek. Uh, the feeling is mutual. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, so tell us about your new book. The Ghost Forest uh, is something that I've been working on for really for decades in various incarnations. And I didn't ever really expect it to be published after a while because it was so difficult to find a publisher. And then in order to find a publisher, you have to find really an agent. And but I kept working at it and working at it. Uh, and I'll get back to that in a second. But really, the current incarnation took life in 2009. And I explain that in the book when I met up with some activists who had worked on uh, uh, creating Redwood National Park in the 1960s and 70s. So they were, you know, elderly by then and uh, wanted to get that story. And the reason I went back to that is because the stories I had been writing, the the um, versions of the last Redwood uh, liquidation by Maxam of, of Headwaters Forest and really 200,000 acres of forest land that the company bought um, really seemed somehow untethered. Uh, there needed to be a better anchor rather than just this particular story, our story, if you will, the, you know, the Earth First activists, the uh, litigants, uh, and the, the long, really uh, clearly epic story, epic was being one of the lit litigants. Um, but it it didn't, um, it wasn't full enough. It didn't provide enough context. You could write, and whole books have been written about this, but so I decided to go back and I wanted to answer the question, uh, what really happened to the Redwoods? How is it that in 1985, there could be just 5% of the ancient redwoods left. And how is it that this company could secure uh, the very last private holdings and set out to triple the cut? Uh, how is all this possible? What is the backdrop to that? And so I went back to um, the 19th century, starting in 1850, I worked my way up. Uh, really took hold of the history in the 1880s with the Redwood land frauds, which are notorious. And I explain quite a bit in the book. And then uh, to early 20th century efforts uh, by industrialists to feign Redwood protection efforts in order to secure standing Redwoods for future inclusion into uh, industrial uh, uses. And that became uh, the focus of a large part of the book. And that was kind of the the unveiling of this uh, Save the Redwoods League uh, as a creation of industry. So in any case, I, I kept doing this. Um, the 2010s were a fruitful era for me in this research because uh, the League archives, about 200,000 pages of Save the Redwoods League archives, were curated 
and organized uh, at the University of California, Berkeley Bancroft Library, great research institution there. And that really uh, took me down these paths that I didn't know exist. Um, and we'll get back to, I'm sure, Save the Redwoods League in a little bit, but just moving forward to the original um, discussion here, uh, I actually finally got a uh, an agent in 2020, uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, then a month later, I had a contract from Public Affairs, which is an imprint of Hachette. And that enabled me to really dig in and put a good solid two years into uh, organizing and reproducing um, this material into this story, this this whole story of ancient redwood liquidation. So b- before we talk about ancient forest, ancient redwood liquidation, can you give us like a five minute introduction to redwoods for those who and redwood forests for those who um, may not be from Northern California or even for those who may be in Northern California and don't know? Right. Well, there's actually the history of the redwood species is little known to most people, even those of us who have, you know, ventured into the forest many times. And so some of this was uh, new to me uh, starting in the you know, 2010s and into the early 2020s, some of this research into the redwood ecosystem. Uh, I found out that it began evolving about 200 million years ago and uh, it populated all what are now the continents of North Northern Hemisphere uh, in the planet. Uh, it survived the... Um, Chicxulub, um, meteor that wiped out 70 odd percent of life on Earth uh, and including the dinosaurs. And it survived the dinosaurs and and continued to migrate, really. And it uh, survived the breakup of Panagea, the the great single continent uh, that is now, you know, several continents on the planet and continued to migrate, seeking moisture, really, as as far as I know. Uh, and so that is why you end up with a redwood ecosystem that is only 2 million acres. I say only 2 million because most coniferous species uh, have a much greater expansion than that. And many are found all over the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere, different conifers down there generally. Um, and uh, and so here we have it on the California coast, a very thin strip of about 30 miles wide at the widest, uh, ranging from about Big Sur in central coastal California up to the Oregon border and just across the border. And that's it. That's the entire redwood ecosystem. And within that ecosystem, you get great variations of the redwood type. Uh, Further south, a little drier, a little more mixed with other species. and a lot of large trees, but not the immense collections of gargantuan conifers that we see further north, uh, starting, uh, well, one time in Sonoma County, where I'm from, uh, but especially Mendocino, and then particularly in Humboldt and Del Norte County uh, counties, where you got the collections of huge redwoods dominating, uh, especially river flats and creek flats, uh, you know, these alluvial flats of, of deep soils and moisture. And that's that's why you see such grand growth uh, for that which is left. And 
again, before we continue, can you, and thank you for that. That's a wonderful introduction. Can you talk a little bit about the um, natural communities in the Redwoods? Or that's, I use natural communities generally instead of ecosystems because it's more, uh, it's less machine language, but you can use ecosystems if you want. Um, just the, the ecosystem. Uh, when I think of Redwood forests, I also think of um, salmon, although salmon have only been around for a million and a half years or something. Um, can you can you talk about the other? And also, you haven't you haven't really mentioned size. Can you just give people a a, a, a taste of the of the immensity of these these beings? Yes, and I'll, I'll start with the salmon because that's a very good point. And what we know from you know modern research, and I think what the native peoples of these lands well understood is that salmon is an old growth dependent species on the west coast of the U.S. going up into Canada and Alaska. Um, the forests protect the water quality, and when it's warm, the forests keep that water cool, and salmon need that. Um, so salmon did evolve with these coniferous species, and in the redwoods, they were replete. Uh, the Klamath River, the Russian River, um, Redwood Creek, the Mad River, these were great salmonid streams. Uh, and, uh, you know, mu not much anymore, but they held some of the greatest runs of um fishery of salmonids anywhere in the world. Um, and uh, so what was the other part of your question? The ecology? Oh, and also uh, just the size. Cause, oh yes, the size. I'm I mean, sorry. if you see these, it's, it's, it, I have, I have yet to meet a person who sees an old growth redwood without going silent. That's right. That is a common response. Awe uh, is a common response in the redwood forest. Um, there are, I know of two, individuals I wasn't there, but who brought uh, people to the Redwoods for the first time, and, and these people dropped to their knees. Uh, almost stereotypical response, but you get that in the Redwoods. It's a phenomenon. So the largest stump known today, it's about five miles from my house, and it is 32 feet across. Uh, my house is about 30 feet across. Uh, it had two feet of bark, a foot on each side, um, before it was cut down, and the bark is now gone. But the stump is still there, rather sound. It was cut in the 1890s, this tree, uh, in the Fieldbrook area um, on a tributary to the Mad River. Uh, so that gives you an idea of the potential of these trees. And there were uh, many other trees that reached 30 feet in diameter. Uh, many, you know, being a relative turn, most of the giant redwoods were in 20 feet. Uh, well, 20 feet is a big tree, um, 20 to between 20 and 25 feet, 15 to 20 feet. Uh, sometimes you will get collections of enormous trees standing next to each other uh, that seem impossible, that seem as if there no way could an ecosystem uh, support this kind of growth. But it does because the soils have become so rich over time, uh, eons really, and uh, the water uh, saturation is great on these, in, in particular, these alluvial flats. Um, and so, you know, the, the redwood forest is a world of plants. Um, there's not a lot of fauna in the redwood forest, certainly some. Uh, you have your voles, you have fishers, uh, you know, which is a rare carnivorous species, the Humboldt martin, uh, another one. Uh, but really what you're talking about is a plant 
dominated world and salmon or, and fish, say, in general. Uh, but when you go into a dense, dark flat of ancient redwoods, what you get is very muted light and therefore a proliferation of shade-loving species um, on the forest floor. So here you have these titanic trees, omnipotent, um, otherworldly, sometimes just unbelievable, and yet harboring these very delicate plant ecosystems that are absolutely delightful. Uh, so it's a world unto itself. It's sort of like a magic place. It is magic. Uh, and there's really no underestimating the power of history and life in, in these forests. One, la one last thing about the, the, the Redwood community before we move on, which is the, the, I mean, they're really tall and there can be entire communities of little, little beings like salamanders who live in the crowns who never come to earth. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. That is some very recent research uh, done uh, in large part by Steve Sillett uh, um, back in the, I think, late 90s. It may have started, but especially in the aughts. He's now at Cal Poly Humboldt uh, studying redwood ecology quite a bit. Uh, and he climbed, uh, along with Marie Antone, his, his wife and other people, uh, climbed into the canopies of these great trees uh, which we did when we were tree sitting. We weren't in trees necessarily that had these what they called reiterated trunks. And so when you get a 350 foot tree, often at, say, the 250 or 300 foot mark, the top will have been broken off, say, 500 years ago and regrown into several new trunks. And then within the, that world that was created would be great accumulations of soil. I think they found a small pond in one of these um, bowl-like worlds it created when that top was blown off and the trunks regrew. Uh, certainly, um, there are mosses, there were are huckleberries, there are other conifers growing out of these. And there are, again, like you mentioned, salamanders that never see the ground. They are found only in the canopy of ancient redwood trees, which was an extraordinary find. Uh, just whole worlds up there uh, that no one knew existed. So let's move from that to the destruction. And how do you want to, where where do you want to start with a more detailed account? Do you want to start in the 19th century? Do you want to start 1985? Where, wherever you want to start is great. Yeah, I think that to better in, understand um, why redwoods were so targeted for um, liquidation and use by industry, you do have to go back to the 19th century. Uh, at first, uh, in the 1850s, uh, the only redwoods cut were small. They, the, the big ones, it was unwieldy to be, uh, you know, moving them, milling them. There, were, there was not the machinery for it, etc. And as redwood became used uh, for lumber, through the 1860s and into the 1870s, industrialists began to understand the longevity of the wood, that it has this rot-free quality, a lack of resin uh, and an uh, anti-microbial um, quality that would allow the, the um, lumber to be used to store even uh, acids, uh, uh, you know, and oil, you know, um, petroleum. Uh, and, uh, you know, the 
A lot of the cyanide solutions used for extracting gold uh, were stored in redwood tanks because no other wood could do that. And so the industrial uses, they grew to such an extent that redwood became an irreplaceable component of the growth of industry in the United States, particularly in the Western U.S., uh, which was seeing in the late 19th century and well into the early 20th century, uh, the most rapid and forceful growth of industry in world history. And the redwood lumber by 1878 was so recognized as an integral component to uh, industrial expansion that when the Timber and Stone Act passed that year, uh, within four years, a Scottish conglomerate with New York uh, investors and San Francisco investors and uh, Humboldt County-based uh, you know, fixers uh, conspired and they stole from the public domain illegally through the Timber and Stone Act 124,000 acres of the best remaining redwood just about anywhere on the planet. And that was just the largest of many examples of redwood theft. And that was because the wood, it was understood by then that the wood was virtually irreplaceable. And as I show in the book, as things progressed, by the 1890s, a uh, redwood lumber baron who you've never heard of named C.A. Hooper um, really perfected what was known as a redwood stave pipe. And the stave pipe changed the West and much of the United States and the world in a way that really almost no other entity did, perhaps save the railroads. And what the stave pipe looked like, if you can imagine a big tube, you know, a round tube, and it's made out of specially milled redwood, um, anywhere from three inches thick, three to four inches wide, and 10 to 20 feet long with male and female ends, and they can fit snugly uh, in there. And these stave pipes can be banded with iron bands and then stitched across rugged terrain uh, with relative ease. You know, the only other material that would uh, carry water in such a way without it breaking down uh, and blowing out was cast iron. And that was prohibitively expensive. And also it just could not be stitched across miles of mountainous terrain like redwood could. And so redwood changed everything when it was able to bring enormous amounts of water <clears throat> to agriculture, to cities and uh, sewage outflow as well. Uh, and then especially what was happening by, by the late 1890s and well into the 20th century and throughout the first decades of the 20th century was that redwood stave pipes were the only material that could move enormous amounts of water from dams to turbines, sometimes several miles away. And so they would capture, especially in, in the West, in California, they would capture the waters of the great Sierra Nevada rivers uh, behind dams and then channel it in these redwood stay pipes to turbines. And those turbines powered the West. The West grew on hydropower. And without redwood, that expansion could not have occurred. That expansion of, of electricity that was available to cities to expand and especially to industry 
to expand. Once that happened, it was clear that Redwood had to be saved from preservation efforts. And these efforts were long ongoing throughout the late 19th century, uh, culminating in 1902 with the preservation of Big Basin Redwoods, about 1,500 acres of old growth in Santa Cruz County. And then in 1917, the protection of just 400 acres of old growth Redwood, but in my home county of Sonoma, uh, where that was the largest virgin redwood grove left in a county that once had 150,000 acres. So these were highly organized campaigns. They drew increasingly powerful acolytes to the movement, and it put the redwood producers and the, the consumers in particular on edge. And so that's where we got Save the Redwoods League was as the world's first and most successful example of greenwashing, and that was developed to prevent redwood preservation wait can you make that i'm i'm a little unclear I, I was hearing i was hearing that they were preserving small amounts but i'm i I'm, i don't understand the greenwashing yet right well i haven't got to it yet okay great <laughs> so what happened was in 1917 and this is part of the lore of save the redwoods league you had these three quote men of science uh, Madison Grant, Henry Fairfield Osborne, um, and, uh, oh my God, I'm blanking on uh, Miriam, sorry, John Miriam, uh, met at Bohemian Grove uh, in Sonoma County, which is the you know private enclave of the rich and powerful uh, in the United States, and especially in the West, San Francisco Bohemian Club being at the time uh, the most powerful business organization in the West. Uh, and so they met in 1917 at the club and there devised a plan to save the Redwoods and save the Redwoods League was born. Um, and so and the lore that the league still promotes is that in uh, 20, uh, 1918, that marked really the beginning of activities of Save the Redwoods League. So or um, 1918. Right. So in 2018, they had a big you know, centennial anniversary of that. Um, but really, the league took off in terms of activity in 1919. And that's when they began the incorporation process. Really, it was sort of a moribund uh, operation up to that point. There wasn't, they weren't really serious about it. Um, it was just kind of, in a way, as I point out in the book, a way to marginalize and to appease Madison Grant. Now, Madison Grant, way over here, is a whole nother subject. In fact, a whole book has been written on him, uh, Defending the Master Race by Jonathan Spiro. Um, and I use that in my book. It's a very well-researched uh, book by Jonathan. And Madison Grant was two things. He was uh, one of the world's uh, foremost racists and white supremacists who helped to develop theories that would later be used by the Germans to justify the Holocaust in the 1930s and especially the 40s. He was also one of the few authentic environmentalists in the United States who was principally responsible for preserving hundreds of thousands of acres and eventually millions of acres of habitat for large apex species. And he was able to pull this off because he was a powerful New York attorney, um, a descendant of Puritans from the early 1600s. 
and had enormous clout and was able to do this. And so Madison Grant was one of the three titular founders who met in 1917 uh, at Bohemian Grove, and they took a trip up to the Northern Redwoods and saw the Redwood carnage. And Grant was on fire, and he was just the guy to do it. Uh, he had the gravitas, the connections, the money to create this a group that would save large tracts of Redwood. And he wanted to save hundreds of thousands of acres of, of standing ancient Redwood. So in 1919, the League began the incorporation process, and that, not coincidentally, followed a bill submitted, uh, you know, again, by just two weeks earlier, by Congressman Clarence Lay of Santa Rosa in Sonoma County to create a Redwood National Park. And no, and at that point, there was nothing like this. There was no federal effort. It was the first federal look at the Redwoods. There was an understanding on both coasts that the Redwoods were going down fast and that really now is the time to save large tracts. So the League founded at the same time. They incorporated uh, really as an attempt to derail this process by the federal government. And the founders are really an exquisite uh, roster of industrialists who would suffer under Redwood preservation. And the example, well, I use a lot of examples in the book, but the one that stands out the most is this guy with the pulp fiction name of Wigington Creed, which, again, is not going to mean anything, just like C.A. Hooper might not mean much, those names. But Wigington Creed in 1904, he's a California native, um, as a young upcoming attorney, he married Isabel Hooper, C.A. Hooper's daughter, and then became integral to his father-in-law's Redwood Empire. And C.A. Hooper was one of the largest uh, purveyors of Redwood lands and Redwood lumber in the world. And he had uh, begun Redwood Manufacturers Company in 1900. And before that, the Excelsior Wooden Pipe Company, both of which uh, were the world's largest producer of redwood stave pipes. So in 1914, Wigington Creed inherited the Hooper fortune through his wife, Isabel Hooper, and took control, became president of Redwood Manufacturers Company. Uh, he was president of the East Bay Municipal Water District, which is a huge consumer of Redwood Stay Pipes uh, and, and nine other companies. He was president and a very powerful attorney at that time. And so in 1919, Creed became one of the founding directors of Save the Redwoods League. And he wrote the League's Articles of Incorporation and Bylaws. This man who would lose enormously if Redwoods were preserved. And what was interesting about that, that would happen in 1920, the incorporation of the League with, with um, Creed, Wigington Creed, writing uh, these, these bylaws and the Articles of Incorporation, and uh, having a founding role in the direction of this organization. Uh, and that Lay's bill came to Congress in 1920. And all this happened at about the time that, as expected, Wigington Creed was tapped to become president of Pacific Gas and Electric, the world's largest consumer of redwood stave pipes. So in that moment, as he is finishing the Articles of Incorporation and the bylaws for Save the Redwoods League and directing 
programs at the league. He is among the world's largest purveyors and consumers of Redwood products. And that, in a nutshell, is the essence of Save the Redwoods League, as I demonstrate in the Ghost Forest throughout the 20th century. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I know this is off the topic of Redwoods, but it's funny how often this, this happens in different industries in capitalism, isn't it? Well, yes. And we see it, of course, more and more today, the right. actual usurpation of, of movements that might threaten, you know, uh, corporate profits then get yeah, usurped or, or marginalized or absorbed into a bigger thing. And it's really important to do our own research as to, you know, who groups are and who's sponsoring what, who's paying for what. The Koch brothers are notorious for their anti-oil groups, you know, that they fund and things like that. Uh, so, but this was the first and, and greatest early example of, of greenwashing. So how do you, how do you want to proceed now? Do you want to, because I do want to cover, we're about a half hour in, so we have about 15, 20 minutes left. And I I do want to cover the the Redwood Wars themselves. Do you want to skip up to them, or do yeah. you want to? No, that's fine. Segue. No, that's good. We can we can go through because I kind of covered what happened in the 20th century. Now we can get to uh, the you know what got me in there and all that. If you want, great. That's perfect. Are you there? Oh yeah. Are you going to ask me a question? Oh no, I said I I was like no, that's great. Just go ahead. Oh, okay. 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 Um, so fast forward to 1985. Uh, there's a lot of history in there. It's all in the ghost forest. Um, how Save the Redwoods League derailed efforts for a Redwood National Park in the 1960s uh, and in the 40s and 50s, other, other activities. And not just the league. Um, there was real effort um, on behalf of a lot of industrialists to save the Redwoods for industry. So in 1985, I graduated from UC Santa Cruz and went back to my hometown of Guerneville, Western Sonoma County, uh, as they say in the book, as if connected by a rubber band. I uh, just went right back home and got a job immediately with a small newspaper called The Paper. And when I got that job, I found a house to rent uh, that was at the end of a road and it overlooked a wonderful uh, second growth redwood Grove. Uh, it was about 100 years old. Uh, the trees were maturing. They were four to five feet in diameter. And I used to go down there and run and everything. And then about a month or two later, um, there were these plastic ribbons hanging everywhere. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew it wasn't good. So I found out that there was this thing called the California Department of Forestry and that they were regulating this particular timber harvest plan by Louisiana Pacific that was going to be coming and cutting down this grove that I'd grown to love. And that got me into timber politics. Um, I followed that up. I followed the destruction of that grove and Louisiana Pacific's uh, efforts to liquidate its holdings in Sonoma County and get out of the county. Uh, they eventually did get out of the county, but subsequent litigation uh, saved a lot of that forest. Uh, and at the same time, in late 1985, um, as I'm working as a reporter on the timber beat, among other things, Houston-based Max Am Corporation took over the Pacific Lumber Company in a hostile junk bond-fueled buyout of the very last ancient redwood groves uh, still in private hands. Uh, and this is critical habitat 
the only rain, ancient redwood habitat between um, Humboldt Redwood State Park and Redwood National Park, which is a distance of 50 miles. And that 50 miles was once replete with redwood. Uh, but this was it. And this was it anywhere. All the rest was either preserved or most likely cut down. So I started investigating that. Uh, I went to Humboldt County frequently starting in early 1986. I continued to work as a reporter, uh, but got deeper and deeper into the story. Yet at the same time, I was offered an editor's position at the North Coast News in Fort Bragg, another redwood timber town uh, in Mendocino County. And I actually accepted the job. And right after that, the next day, I went out for the first time and visited one of the ancient redwood groves, Owl Creek Grove, which is called now, um, to just see it, you know, because I hadn't yet. And I was floored. As you said earlier, you know, people just become speechless. And I was. And But this was because it wasn't just an ancient redwood grove. It was a wild ancient redwood grove. And you just don't get the same feeling in the protected parks, as grand and illustrious as they are. There was this feeling, and it's not it wasn't even seeing it. It was just how it felt to be in there. And as I say in the book, it was like being um, reunited with a family member uh, long thought dead. And that changed everything. I turned down the job that night uh, and packed up, gave notice at my apartment and at my job, and moved up to Humboldt County and spent the next four years as a direct action activist. Um, attempting to bring the world's attention to this final Redwood Roundup. And it took a lot to get the world's attention. You know, this was going on all through 1986. I, I used whatever investigative skills I'd honed by then and determined that uh, Pacific Lumber had tripled its cut throughout 1986 um, under Max Sam and, uh, and that the California Department of Forestry was uh, playing along illegally by approving these plans that violated several state and federal statutes, which always bore out in court. There were a lot of uh, subsequent lawsuits by the Environmental Protection Information Center and later by Sierra Club Legal Defense. And it was clear that all of these plans were illegal because they violated especially the cumulative effects clause of the California Environmental Quality Act, one of the toughest um, state acts uh, for the environment in the country. Um, but the Endangered Species Act as well, there's a successful litigation under the federal ESA and things like that. Um, yet the entire operation remained a rogue um, annihilation of the last redwoods um, and not just the 8,000 acres of, of virgin redwood, the unentered uh, stands that stood when Maxam took over. Now we're down to 3,000 acre headwaters forest uh, and um, about 1,500 acres of the rest of that um, virgin uh, stand. The rest was cut. But almost more importantly was the decimation of 56,000 acres of residual redwood by Max Sam. And this was forest that uh, Pacific Lumber had previously logged, but they left half the trees standing. It was a select cut, and they'd been selectively cutting for almost 40 years at that point. And so when Max Am came to town, they had this incredible inventory of old growth redwood, um, one of the most valuable species of tree in the world at that time, um, that had all the roads to it. It was all ready to go. And so it was a real slam dunk for them to, to get at this. So that was a, a huge loss. 
Um, we did a lot of direct action. I was a tree sitter twice uh, at 150 feet up um, with my tree sitting partner, Mary Beth Nearing. And we also staged several others. I learned to climb with spurs on my boots and we did a lot of that. We blockaded uh, bulldozers and logging trucks. Uh, but we also did a lot of re serious research and public publicizing of what was going on. And we talked to media and we brought out um, you know, 2020 and the New York Times and 60 Minutes, and that would turn out to be a debacle, 60 Minutes, my God. Um, and, uh, you know, we we found that the forces we were up against, because Maxam had such uh, powerful allies uh, in, in Washington, in New York, uh, and in San Francisco, including at Save the Redwoods League. And so... You know, even though we were finding this rogue um, pattern of illegal logging by this company, sanctioned by the state of California routinely, uh, there was no stopping them. There was just it went on and on. And it's um, one of the great tragedies of the era that really no state or federal um, authorities or even and especially local stood up to say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to take this. We're going to shut you down. We're going to sue you. You know, it was always citizen action. And, and that's a great tragedy. You know, at the, at the end of the day, um, the Congressman John Dingell did look at the Maxam takeover in 1987. Uh, Dingell wrote the Federal Endangered Species Act. Um, but that was just the takeover that, which was also largely illegal. Um, you know, using uh, stock parking by Ivan Boski. Boyd Jeffries and Michael Milken, who would all later be convicted of felonies. Somehow, Charles Hurwitz and Max Sam were able to continue to slide uh, and make the Fortune 500 list uh, eight times in 15 years on you know, the blood of the Redwoods. So, so that's all in the book, uh, how that all came about, and a um, lot of material on what happened to us, death threats, assaults, and then the bombing of Judy Berry and Daryl Cherney in 1990 in Oakland, California, for their Redwood work. Uh, and then right through the Headwaters deal, which was a bogus giveaway of $480 million of taxpayer money for a grove that was worth $50 million, because just previous to that, the um, EPIC, uh, Environmental Protection Information Center, won a federal ESA suit against Pacific Lumber for logging in the old growth groves. And the ESA and the Board of Forestry by that time, incredibly, um, were preventing the logging of Headwaters Forest. So it was worth about $50 million. Uh, they got $480 million for it and in, uh, milked the rest of the company through these illegal and fraudulent habitat conservation plans and sustained yield plan. And then in 2007, right on schedule, um, Pacific Lumber declared bankruptcy. Maxam took enormous profits to the bank. Pacific Lumber was left in the dust, and so were their employees and their pension fund, which was raided by Maxam. Just a, a two-decade run of rogue corporate malfeasance that was never checked by state or federal officials. So what? So you did you did a you you did a really wonderful job of giving us a feel for what it what it feels like to be in a redwood forest and and you've also done a great summary a great description of 
the actions, and sorry if this is too much of a touchy-feely question, but can you also give us a a feel for the activism itself? Well, two things. One is, can you give us a feel for the activism itself? Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Yes. And then the other part of the question is, with all of these interviews I've been doing for the last 10 years like this, one of the the key things that I'm explicitly trying to do is to get people off their butts to protect something they love. So can you also like talk about the process? What was it that got you off your butt to, I mean, you said there was seeing that grove that was cut by Louisiana Pacific, but can you be more specific about how is it that some people act and some people don't? And what can we do to encourage more people because the big distinction is not between those who want to bring everything down and those who don't, or the the distinction is not between the the big distinction is between those who do something and those who do nothing. So can you can you sort of urge people? I'm I'm done. Take it wherever you want. Okay. Um, yeah, that's that's a really great question. Uh, why is it some people act and and most don't? Uh, and the, I think it's pretty easy to answer part of that. Most people uh, are scrambling to pay the rent, uh, make sure the kids are taken care of if they have kids or, or whatever. That's most people. Um, and and then when you get to the, a little higher economic echelon, um, there's a comfort level that is provided really by not making too many waves in the United States. We used to have a saying that you can say and do whatever you want in the United States so long as you don't start to make a difference. Um, for myself, uh, I was able to drop everything I was doing uh, and move north because I, I developed some contacts up there. Um, I got a free place to live. I had no money, really. Um, and uh, I wasn't married. I had no kids. I was just renting a house. I didn't have a mortgage. Uh, and again, the love, and it was love that I felt for these forests, uh, was unequivocal and drove me to go up there. Again, it was like I needed to save a family member. And uh, there was just no denying the feeling. It wasn't really an intellectual consideration. It was this visceral, whole body understanding that these forests needed me and I was able to go. Um, so for people today who I know are frustrated and, you know, concerned, deeply concerned about where, where we're going on the planet and, and socially, uh, you know, with politics and the atrocities that we're now seeing, I've always seen throughout the world, um, people against each other, but also people continuing to attack the environment, the the natural ecosystem that supports us all. Um, how to get involved when you are stretched to your limit already, and and that is the most difficult question, and it boils down to I think that we all have to understand that our contributions to a little bit better world, even if very small mean a great difference. Just think if 50 million people in, in the United States today who uh, never 
look into even what's going on in their backyard. You know, I hate the term NIMBY because where else are you going to start to protect an area except in your backyard? Um, what's going on there? You know, what uh, in, in our area, we're seeing, uh, we still see herbicide spraying in the forest right above us. Uh, we still, um, we're now looking at possible high-rise apartment buildings being built in the city of Arcata where there are none now, but a whole quadrant of the city full of them. There's the offshore wind factories. They're going to be the largest wind turbines and the largest collection of them in the world off the Humboldt and, and Oregon coasts that will all be staged out of Humboldt Bay. And these are huge developments and impacts to our environment. And so uh, my wife and I and our friends, we have just dipped into this a little bit. Some of these issues, not the, the forestry stuff I'm actually looking at quite a bit, but um, these major proposed developments. So people in our area are feeling stymied. The, the offshore wind is, is, seems inexorable, but it's not. Uh, so it's a, which is a long way of saying that you can always do something. You can always uh, look around at who needs a letter. You can contact um, any, a local group, uh, an environmental group, a, a climate group. Uh, what do you need? Right? What can I provide you in an hour? What can I provide you in an hour every week or every day? Right. And and grow into some form of activity, which shouldn't be done, you know, whole whole person right away. Um, I don't think unless you have that space like I did as a young man, um, I couldn't do that today. You know, I'm too involved and, and I have family and and uh, so I can't just toss everything. But at some point, you know, the way the world is, you might be, not be able to toss everything and and work on an issue uh, at full, you know, effort, but you might get tossed, you know, you might get tossed. A lot of people do, um, end up being, uh, activists because the situation that they face demands it. There's no other way out. Um, so, you know, anything, any, every little bit helps and, and, uh, you know, I encourage people to look around them and say, okay, what, what can I do? Read the paper critically, uh, you know, go beyond the headlines, look at, um, work that people are doing. Look at websites. They're really great. The websites that um, elucidate what organizations in your area are doing and who the people are. You can look at who the people are. Are they, you know, bona fide? Is this a real thing? And uh, so take some research, but it's it's doable. So years ago, I was asked to write, uh, like, oh, 20 years ago now, I was asked to write uh, a short article for um, for Audubon about what was still going on with the Redwoods. And uh, when I called around, I had just moved here. And when I called around, they're like, yeah, Julia Butterfly Hill's still up in the tree, so we're still fighting. And that didn't seem the best metric for me. Um, I mean, that's that's one metric, but what what can you say about what's currently going on with, with Redwoods? What is currently going on with redwoods is disturbing. Uh, half of the redwood biome, almost a million acres, is today owned by two companies. One of them is Green Diamond Resource Company, which owns 420,000 acres that surrounds um, the, most of the redwood parks in Humboldt and Del Norte counties. And the other company is a Fisher conglomerate. Uh, the Fishers own the Gap and Banana Republic and a lot of other things. The billionaire Fisher 
family owns Humboldt Redwood Company and Mendocino Redwood Company, which are one company. And that's just over half a million acres. So almost a million acres owned by these two companies, both of which log heavily green diamond, uh, the heaviest. Uh, and, uh, you know, Humboldt and Mendocino Redwood Company is very heavy as well. And they both apply herbicides, which, uh, and they all have also, they conspired um, both those companies to scam the Forest Stewardship Council, which I think, you know, is again, one of those groups that really demands some inspection because uh, it was so easy to scam them. And so now Green Diamond is certified green through the Forest Stewardship Council. And yet they clear cut these vast patches of tiny redwoods and then spray it all with herbicides and plant cl clone monocultural tree farms. Uh, the uh, uh, Humboldt Redwood, Mendocino Redwood Company's um, art farm be art far behind. So these two expanses of redwood probably just need to be acquired by a public entity, uh, probably cost two or $3 billion, which is not much when you look at a couple of things, one of which would be the um, carbon sequestration. If these could just be purchased and let to grow back with almost no logging or resource extraction whatsoever. So that's one thing is that these two companies need to be brought to heel. Um, it's rapacious what's going on. The uh, anyway, so it, it just it's it's really awful that that's the redwood condition right now on the north coast. Um, the other thing that's happening that is starting to make the news is the hoovering of forests, particularly in the southeast of the U.S. But now um, these companies are moving west to create these uh, pellets to feed European power plants. Uh, that were dependent on coal and now are, are converting over to wood. Uh, biomass. Biomass is one of the dirtiest forms of energy in the world. It can be 30 to 50 percent, um, can contribute 30 to 50 percent more carbon to the atmosphere than coal. And yet it's being touted as a carbon neutral uh, source of energy because the trees grow back. Uh, it's a fallacy. It's bogus, but it's that's the way it's going right now with the climate negotiations, et cetera. So why there's a pass for this, I'm not sure. Um, but there's really powerful efforts right now to curtail this because what's happening is these companies are taking every stick of fiber off of massive landscapes to make these wood pellets. Uh, and two, the two big companies that are doing it are um, Enviva and Drax, D-R-A-X. And so people can uh, look those up, those companies, they'll find a real wealth of information about what they're doing. But they are now looking at Western forests, and this is really dangerous and disturbing. Uh, so wood for energy, it's a false panacea, and it's extremely destructive. So those are two things going on in the woods in, say, California. Oregon and Washington, Oregon's a disaster uh, in terms of state forest law. There really isn't any, and, and Washington's not far behind. Um, it's just been, uh, it, it doesn't abate. That's what I don't get is, is here we are at this time in, in human and planetary history, when we really have to rethink, uh, our, uh, industrial practices and retrieve them, bring them back from the brink, uh, stop doing a lot of what we do. And yet we're moving full steam ahead on a lot of this and it's pretty disturbing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for all that. Um, the relative rate by the way, of the 
deforestation of the American Southeast is greater than that of the Amazon. Um, yes, I've heard that, right? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely horrible. Um, so we're running out of time in more ways than one. And um, could you uh, let people know how to find out more about your work? Yes, uh, to learn more about the ghost forest and my work, well, there's there's two websites that come to mind. One is my my writing website, and it's Greg King Writer, G-R-E-G-K-I-N-G Writer uh, dot com. And there you'll find um, all the reviews and blurbs and my appearances, such as this one, uh, you know, in various media, uh, and more about the book and photographs, etc. Um, the other, uh, my other website that I, I run for the Siskiyou Land Trust is Siskiyou, uh, Siskiyouland.org. I'm sorry, it's not Siskiyou Land Trust, it's Siskiyou Land Conservancy. And it's really a gaffe on my part because there is a Siskiyou Land Trust, which I didn't know when I founded the Conservancy 20 years ago. Um, in any case, uh, Siskiyou Land Conservancy, so Siskiyouland.org, um, more about my work and, and what I'm doing. Uh, and then in terms of the Redwoods, uh, the health of the Redwoods. Um, if you want the propaganda sites, say the Redwoods League is good for that and where to hike, things like that. Um, and then there's just uh, a, a wealth of other sources of information. You've mentioned Epic a couple of times. Do you want to mention their website? Yes. Um, Epic, the Environmental Protection Information Center, can be found at wildcalifornia.org. Um, it might be .com, might be both. Uh, but that is an excellent uh, resource for uh, Pacific Northwest issues in California. Well, thank you so much for all of this, and thank you for being on the program, and I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Greg King. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>